During the years 1949 and 1950, an unusual and to some also scandalous court case was being reported on in the newspapers of post-war Austria. The reporters followed the case from the arrest until the final conviction of the accused. I say final here because by sensationalizing the story and dragging the accused's name through the mud, a trial by media had already happened and it was not in favor of the defendant. Some of the headlines read as follows. After nine years of a happy marriage, husband exposed as a woman. Woman or man? That's the question. How Martha became a man. The female husband before the court in Graz, a faculty report, shall decide sex change or scam. Convicted to stay a woman. This is the story of Hans M., who, if alive today, may have identified as intersex and transgender, who had been convicted for homosexuality under paragraph 129 of the Austrian Penal Code in 1950, but whose verdict was overturned by the court 13 years later. You are listening to Out of the Dark, the podcast where we explore queer history in an Austrian context. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Out of the Dark. This podcast is a project of three students from the University of Vienna. I am Ines and I have a background in gender studies and political science. I am Maria and I'm doing my bachelor's in German and comparative literature. My name is Toni, I'm doing my master's in history and I wrote my thesis about the court case that we're going to tell you about in this podcast. Thank you for joining us as we take a stroll through a piece of Austria's queer history. Together, we will take a closer look at a long-forgotten court case that took place in post-war Austria. As the title already suggests, it is a story that has been in the dark for a long time. By telling this story, we want to shed light on a queer life that was silenced, disrupted and forever changed by a court case. Along the way of telling this story, we will also talk about the questions and difficulties that arose when writing this podcast. They are issues that historians often face when wanting to take a closer look at lives that have been marginalized for decades in stories that are not part of the mainstream narrative. That includes questions like, how can we make these voices heard when they have been systematically oppressed? Or, How do we deal with individual biographies when writing a more general history of a group? Are these biographies representative? Do they even have to be representative? We also talk about how we can be conscious about a perspective and our motivations. We tend to put people into boxes when we try to tell a compelling story. The three of us struggled with how we could deal responsibly with this issue. In order to make marginalized stories heard, we have to some extent give an answer to these questions, like who are these people and why have they been marginalized? 
Still, we have to be clear that these are labels that we as historians ascribe to historical subjects and sometimes we have no way of knowing how they perceive themselves. These are some of the theoretical questions that we have been asking ourselves when coming up with the concept and we will try to discuss them as we go along. This is a podcast about queer history, which necessarily means that we have an activist approach. It also means that we reflect about the constructedness of norms and what purpose these norms serve in the past and present. In this podcast, we want to talk about a trial that took place a little more than 70 years ago. It is not at all a well-known case. Up until the trial, the accused person had lived a private life. He was not famous and his financial means were limited. The trial records have been safely stored in the regional archive of Styria and nobody had a look at them in decades. The files provide an insight into the life of a man who had to defend himself in front of the court for allegedly having the wrong sex and loving the wrong person. It is one of many tragic fates that reveal the injustice committed against those who did not comply with heteronormative laws. This is a podcast about queer history. And of course, we want to look at the bigger picture. But first, we have to engage with the source and answer a few questions. Why had nobody had a look at these files yet? Is the person still alive? Or is there maybe somebody else who remembers his story? But before we try to reconstruct the story, let's start at the very beginning, the starting point, so to say, by which I mean the material source, the court files. As historians, we are always hoping to get lucky and stumble across a source of historical value. We hope that maybe someday we find an unofficial note of some historic figure or an unheard of account of a contemporary that had been stored in the wrong archival box among administrative files. The amount of sources to our disposition is more limited than one would think, especially when it comes to topics that until now have been paid little attention to, like women's and gender history or queer history. It is obvious that humans have been striving to preserve information for future generations for thousands of years. But that effort was mostly limited to the stuff they, and by that I mean a hegemonic group, deemed preservable. That includes artifacts that were in accordance with their worldview and hailed their culture's achievements. Other voices rarely had a medium that was preservable, and if they did, their remainings were often destroyed, either intentionally or by the ravages of time. And even today it is difficult to decide what objects and data might be of interest in the future, and if and in what form these potential sources should be stored in an archive. We are only realizing now the mistakes we made 50 years ago in dealing with archival data. Especially historians of queer history have difficulties because many court files have either been thrown out by archivists or went moldy in some damp archival cellar. In 2021, I was really hoping to also for once get lucky and find something interesting. At the time, I was researching a topic for my bachelor thesis. I did my research seminar on criminality and criminalization in 20th century Austria. 
For my thesis, I wanted to look into how queer people in general were criminalized in a society that forbade same-sex relations by law. A couple of months before I started looking into that topic, a newly published non-fiction book with a black and white photo of a handsome young man on the cover had caught my attention. The man on the cover was named Franz and the book was about his life and death. Being only in his early 20s, Franz had been executed for homosexuality in Vienna during the Nazi period. I constantly found the book displayed among the best-selling books in popular bookshops. The author and journalist Jürgen Pettinger had used the information that he had found in court files to reconstruct the life of Franz. The book was written as a tribute to all LGBT victims and gives an example of the rigidity of the prosecution of gay men during the Nazi period. Telling the stories of people like Franz had been long overdue in Austria. Pettinger's book helped to finally shed some light on a victim group that up until the early 2000s had been denied acknowledgement and financial compensation for their suffering. The thing is, queer people were still criminalized after the Nazi period and many of them were liberated from the concentration camps only to find themselves in prison shortly after. In Austria's Second Republic, nobody was executed for homosexuality and the verdicts did not always lead to prison time. But a huge number of people faced charges on the basis of paragraph 129. That is also the reason why, until now, queer people have been granted so little space in the historical narrative. So that's sort of what was going on in my head while I was looking for sources that could help me with my research endeavor. I hadn't really gotten anywhere in the first month and I was desperate, but it was still too early to admit that I wouldn't be able to realize the project I had in mind. I kept looking, but I did not really believe that I would find something that I could write a bachelor thesis about. One night in December 2021, I was typing in keywords in the search engine of a website called Anno. It is a project of the Austrian National Library, where you can search for keywords in digitalized newspapers from the 18th century until the early 1950s. I was specifically looking for news articles about convictions under paragraph 129, the paragraph that rendered same-sex sexual relations illegal in Austria until 1971. Contrary to English, in German you usually have a male and female version for nouns that refer to people. So, after trying some keywords that I would expect to find in articles about convictions on the basis of paragraph 129 that yielded only few interesting results, I tried the grammatically female version of the word transvestite. In German as well as in English, it is an outdated word. And in the past it was used to refer to people that, from a purely heteronormative perspective, were gender non-conforming in their appearance. After I hit enter, five or so articles popped up, dating from 1949 and 1950. I quickly skimmed over them and realized that all of them were about the same court case involving a person that was referred to with two names, Hans slash Martha. The trial against Hans took place at the court in Graz, Austria's second biggest city. 
At that time, Graz had about 225,000 residents. Today, it is close to 300,000. I wrote an email to the Regional Archive of Styria, which is situated in Graz, and asked them if, by any chance, they were in possession of the court files belonging to Hans's trial. Only a couple of days later, I received an answer. Yes, the files were in their archive. The people from the archive told me that the files dated from 1949 until 1963, indicating that the case had only been closed in 1963, i.e. 14 years after the first hearing before the court. That was a surprise, since the newspapers had reported that Hans had been convicted for homosexuality in 1950. Maybe there was more complexity to the case than the newspapers admitted, and Hans actually had a chance to reverse the conviction. In order to have the files handed out to me, I had to fill out a request and state my scientific interest. And I had to go to Graz. It is fairly easy to get there from Vienna. The railway line between Graz and Vienna was established in the 19th century and leads through an impressive alpine scenery. I went to the archive on a crisp but sunny January morning. The reading room was empty, except for a few elderly men looking at very old maps. The archivist handed me a heavy stack of paper wrapped in a pink folder with a handwriting labeling it as the criminal case against Hans slash Martha M. I sat down at the table and tried to open the folder without damaging the paper. After all those years, the pages were sticking together. It was obvious that nobody has had a look at these files in decades. Among protocols of the hearings and medical records, the folder contained Hans's marriage certificate, issued in Graz in 1941, when Austria was part of the Third Reich. In the same section of the folder, labeled Evidence, I also found two photos of the accused. One showed a person with short, combed back hair in a dark suit and a patterned neckerchief, softly smiling into the camera. For my dearest mother, it read on the back of the photo. On the other photo, Hans was much skinnier and wearing a uniform that had the symbol of an imperial eagle on his cap. One of the first documents that is included in the folder is a letter from the Styrian regional government to the police headquarters in Graz. Graz on the 26th of February 1949. Subject M. Hans, verification of personal data. On 27th January 1948, a certain Hans M. applied for Austrian citizenship. In the course of the necessary investigation, doubts arose as to whether this person actually was a man. As reported by the Provincial Labor Office in Graz, a public health officer has established without any doubt that M. is a woman. There is no evidence of hermaphroditism. Secondary male sexual characteristics could not be detected at all. M. had allegedly attended several schools for girls under the name Martha M. It seems curious that M. is entitled to the use of the first name Hans and to wear men's clothes according to the decision of the Graz Criminal Police of 1941, although he has a birth and baptism certificate from the city parish stating that his name is Hans M. and a marriage certificate from the registry office stating that he married Alma M. 
The request is made that the gender of Alma's husband be established once again without a doubt by questioning the M spouses and by a police medical examination in order to clarify why this scam is being carried out. Is it possible that the person in question obtained the papers of the real Hans M for an as yet unclear purpose and in this way could have a wedding in Marburg? Perhaps Alma married the real Hans M in Marburg and pretends that the person in question is her husband? In any case, however, it should be clarified and reported how it came about that the criminal investigation department was able to grant the person in question permission to call herself Hans, although she is in possession of a birth and baptismal certificate bearing this first name. A copy of the relevant permit is attached. It may be necessary to make various corrections to the personal data of the person in question, which is why it is requested that light be shed on this dark affair. It took me a couple of hours to reconstruct what had happened to Hans, what he had gone through, how he had been wrongly convicted and then, 14 years later, acquitted. As I was going through the files and was learning of so many intimate details about his life, I started feeling guilty that even though there were protocols of his hearings, I couldn't really get his perspective on the trial, on his life and on his gender identity. I realized that I couldn't know what he was actually saying to the prosecution and how much the secretary had altered his statements. It was impossible to tell what might have been going on in his head and how he really perceived himself. Hans himself must have been deceased for quite some time, but I wondered, would it be possible to find a relative who knew more about him? Much of what we know about Austria's queer history of the 20th century, historians have learned through court files. Paragraph 129 existed on the territory that is now Austria from 1852 until 1971 and rendered same-sex sexual acts illegal. In the 1980s, historians started collecting and evaluating data of prosecutions under paragraph 129. They came to the conclusion that, compared to other European countries, the prosecution of same-sex desiring individuals in Austria was very rigorous, peaking during the Nazi period and in the first years of Austria's Second Republic. Paragraph 129 remained valid also during the Nazi period, which meant that contrary to the rest of the Third Reich, in Austria, women were also in danger of being convicted for homosexuality. However, the data also shows that women were less rigorously prosecuted. Defendants that were considered female made up only a small percentage of all trials under paragraph 129. In a society where you end up in prison for your sexuality or gender identity, you are very careful about leaving any evidence that might be used against you. You would probably hide your love letters or destroy them altogether. That is why ego documents, like diaries and letters, are very rare. Sometimes we find them preserved in the court files when the prosecution used them as evidence in the trial. That is not the case for the trial against Hans. The prosecution didn't need to prove that Hans and his wife were in a romantic relationship. What they needed were medical reports that would prove that Hans was a woman, which were not that easy to get, as you will learn in the next episodes. Shortly after the arrest, when the police were interviewing him, 
it seems that they weren't yet sure of what sort of evidence they needed. The protocols of these hearings didn't document the question of the interviewer, only the responses of the interviewee, although they are usually shortened and reformulated. These early protocols allow us to gain a little more insight into the romantic relationship of Hans and his wife Alma, as well as the hardships. Thank you for joining us for the first episode of Out of the Dark. If you want to hear more about Hans' story and what the hearing protocols said, you can listen to the second episode. 